Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are NFL analyst and senior producer at NFL Films, Greg Cosell, and director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and their associate provost for NCAA compliance, Gabe Feldman. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, The Jordan Harbinger Show, Magic Spoon, and Blinkist in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, you know, it hasn't been a very good political season for Democrats. You've been one of the few semi-bulls. But there are bright spots cropping up. The January jobs report was just terrific, and some economists say unemployment could hit 3% or even lower by the fall. Signs of inflation is abating. Uh, abating still may be too high, but nothing like it is now. Redistricting, where we all thought Democrats were going to lose 8 or 10 seats. Dave Wasserman, the resident guru of the Cook Political Report, now says it's more likely to be a wash, and there's still court tests in North Carolina and Ohio that will advantage Democrats if successful. And last, but hardly least, the Republicans are in a civil war on the indescribably stupid decision by the RNC to not only condemn Liz Cheney and Adam Kensaker, uh, but to proclaim that the January 6th violent insurrection was just people protesting uh, with a peaceful protest. Uh, tell that to all the people who were injured and killed. So I, I think things, I think you're, you were... As usual, James, I think you were prescient. Things are looking better. I don't want to go so far as to say looking good, but they're looking better. Right. Well, per legitimate political discourse is, I think, what they called it. <laughs> legitimate political uh, discourse was the term, yeah, yes. I, yeah, I'd I be very careful. I'm, I'd call myself a bull. I mean, the, the history of first-time off years is, is just awful. And the yep. polling numbers currently are, are highly unimpressive. But as you point out, that there could be some advantageous things in in the future here, and the one thing that I is Democrats we we become so absorbed with our own problems, you know it's like you live in a house and you know you say God this is a screwed up house and then you talk to your neighbor's kids and you go oh shit maybe I was as bad as I thought, <laughs> yeah that's a little bit what we're watching on their side. I mean we can do some dumb things, but it looks like they they they're they're seeing our dumb things and raising the bet. Yeah, they sure are. You want to look at, uh, if you haven't seen it, the tape of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who, when asked about the RNC um, um, proclamation about the legitimate, uh, you know, political discourse uh, by a reporter, was seen running down the halls of the Capitol like a scared jackrabbit trying to avoid uh, the answer. And James, what they can do now, they're going to come and they say, well, of course we condemn violence, but there are a lot of people there, or a lot of people who were peacefully right. protesting, they're being abused. Marco Rubio tried to get away with that last weekend uh, and saying that, uh, among other things, that the January 6th committee is a partisan witch hunt, which is utter, complete nonsense. But every time Rubio says that, just ask Senator Rubio, why last year, when you had a chance to vote for an independent 
January 6th committee, bipartisan, each side having equal power in it, modeled after the 9-11 commission, supported by that chairman, Tom Keene. Why did you vote no? The answer is because you're scared of Donald Trump. So, uh, and, and James, let me just say one more thing about the, uh, about the violent insurrection. Last week, I uh, told our listeners they ought to watch this great HBO documentary. I, I, I said it was 24 hours of the Capitol. It's not. It's four hours of the Capitol. So I added 20 hours. But you ought to watch it. Anyone who hasn't seen four hours of the Capitol on HBO, if you have any doubt of what occurred that day, watch it. Yeah, you know, and we come from, well, like Spencer Dillon Field, you and journalists and, and myself in campaigns. It's hard to imagine any Republican candidate for Congress or Senate or, or, or anything else not being asked, how would you have voted on the resolution in Salt Lake City? Because what they're going to mm-hmm. do is, well, it should have been, you know, would you have voted yes or no? Just simple that. It passed, I think, unanimously. All right? It did. That, that that was Boys what was in, in, in front of you, all right? It did not make, do you think it was a mistake? And, you know, to, to honestly, Kevin McCarthy in, in Rubio, are, are, it, they're almost comical, they're so weak. I, I mean, it really, it, 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 it really is. And they're playing... And we've we've watched enough sports. I've been on enough sports. We've been in enough campaigns. It is the middle of February, and they're in a prevent defense. That's what that's where they are. Just goddamn, we screwed it up. We were on schedule. They shouldn't have done that. It's politically inconvenient. But their reaction is just oppose everything and run the clock out. And man, how, you know, Kevin McCarthy thinks he's about to achieve his dream to become Speaker of the House. But just imagine Kevin McCarthy every day you hear footsteps uh, to draw another football uh, parallel. You're scared every day. You you, you have no conscience, no courage. But, you know, maybe that's all that matters to him. James, one more thing uh, before we turn to our guest. COVID, um, I hope it's not too early. But barring an unexpected new surge or a new uh, dangerous variant, we're getting ready. We're back to near normalcy. Uh, states now are li- are lifting their various mandates, not just the uh, red states, but blue states like uh, New York uh, and New Jersey. And um, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I'm still trying to be cautious. But I think there's a lot of encouraging signs out there. Well, if you look at the map, you know, the, the county map, you can get on the Times, you get on the Post, I'm sure, any other places. It, it, the, the, the reddest part indicates the most COVID. It, it, it's almost a, a map of American stupidity, all right, if you look at it. And this is a, a you know, we talked about this. This is a crisis of the unvaccinated. The problem is, is that the more times it replicates, the greater the chance it mutates. And so until we can, you know, burn through these stupid parts of the country without, you know, over-replication or mutation, we should be in pretty good shape. But if we get killed, it's all going to be these idiotic, unvaccinated people that kill us. What? To anyone out there, I don't think we have any, but if you haven't been vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you haven't been boosted, get boosted. And if you're in crowded venues, still wear a mask. If somebody's not vaccinated, they're not listening to this show. 
Oh, I promise you. I, 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 I will guarantee you this podcast, the listeners have a 100% vaccination rate. I mean, they might, might have some right-wing group that monitors stuff, but, but that's it. It, it. Of course you get vaccinated. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's sinful not to be vaccinated. It is a sin. You, the primary, your primary obligation, according to the Judeo-Christian Abrahamic tradition, is how you treat your neighbor. And, and these people are just stupid. Agreed. Hey, James, we've got a bit of an unusual sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast we love over here. Yeah, I realize everyone online and off recommends a podcast you have to listen to. But you're already listening to us. It's one of them. And I'm telling you, you should be listening to The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Can't argue with that logic. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. He talks to everyone from neuroscientists to counterfeiters to astronauts, authors, thinkers, and performers. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers te techniques on how to get people to like and trust you. In another episode, he talks to an art forger who was on the run from the feds and the mafia. We recommend our listeners check out Jordan's conversations with billionaire investor Ray Dalio, discussing why nations succeed or fail, and with LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman to learn surprising entrepreneurial truths. They're both spectacular episodes. Jordan's a good interviewer, has great guests, and is focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his subjects. We're definitely fans, and hey, if it's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. Right, James? Right, and Reed Hoffman is kind of a friend of mine. I know him pretty well, and if he's associated with something, I can tell you it's going to be highly intelligent, highly relevant, and highly informative. I, I promise you. Well, I think this absolutely fits that bill. Uh, we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. There's a lot to like. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, as in boy, I-N, as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, James, our guest is the best professional football analyst, Greg Cosell, senior producer for NFL Films and co-host of television's NFL Matchup. Hey, Greg, first of all, it's terrific to have you back on Super Bowl week. A month ago, there was no clear-cut Super Bowl favorite, but I think the odds makers would have said, well, Kansas City may be defending champion Tampa Bay with Tom Brady, the Green Bay Packers with the best record perhaps the Buffalo Bills or the Cowboys. Are you surprised it's the Bengals and the Rams? 
You know, Al, I'll say this. You're not the first one who's asked me that. And because I've been doing this for a long time, this is I just finished my 42nd season at NFL Films. Well, I guess I'm never surprised. You know, would I have picked these two teams back in September? No, and I don't think anybody would have. Although I think there was a sense that Matthew Stafford could give the Rams a, a legitimate shot to, to reach this level. Certainly no one would have said the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, but... Uh, am I surprised? No, that wouldn't be the word. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm in a sense pleased because I like to see different teams. Well, you certainly got that. You know, and, and these may not be like some of the celebrated teams of previous Super Bowls, but it's a really interesting matchup. And you have a unique ability, Greg Cassell, to cut to the core. Is it what you read and what I think, whether the Bengals' terrific second-year quarterback – Joe Barrow can withstand the pressure of that great Rams defense, Aaron Donald and Von Miller. Well, see, it's funny that you ask that because obviously that's sort of the the marquee question in this Super Bowl. Is I'm good at Rams I'm good at asking obvious questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's you know it's the Rams' marquee defensive front versus a Bengals O-line that is one of the worst in the league, quite frankly. So, look, the Bengals know this, too, so it, it begs the next question. You always have to ask the next question, as you guys know, being in the business you're in. What's the next question? So the next question is, since Zach Taylor knows this, is how does he compensate for it? How does he camouflage it so that they can effectively run their offense? And to me, that strategic element of this game will go a long way in determining, one, how the Bengals' offense functions, and two, if they can win the game. Would that be short passes? Well, there's, that's one way, but you yep. can't live on, on quick game throws that are all five yards. Um, so there's a number of ways you can do it. Uh, one way is just what you suggested. Another way is the play-action pass game with Burrow under center. And because the play-action pass game with the quarterback under center gives a much stronger run element look to the defense. And what I mean by that is, particularly if it's what we call outside zone, you get the defensive line initially moving laterally as opposed to vertically toward the quarterback. So the step and a half they take laterally is a step and a half they are not rushing the quarterback. So that's another way you try to get that done. Um, mm -hmm. Then the question also becomes, what is their use of personnel? Do they line up with two tight ends? Do they focus on protection at the expense of sending out more receivers? Because football is a numbers game. The more you have in protection, the fewer number of receivers you can send out. But you also don't have a passing game if you can't protect your quarterback. Greg, James, I know we'll have a lot of observations about Joe Burrow and other Bengals, but a question about the Rams coach, Sean McVay. He was the youngest yep. coach in the history of the NFL, uh, then later the youngest coach to take a team to the Super Bowl where they bombed. Uh, now that he's a wise old veteran at age 36 uh, and, and has a new quarterback, uh, is he better positioned? Yes. Uh, first of all, Matthew Stafford was a meaningful upgrade over Jared Goff because he gives you so much more in the passing game. And I think they've they've recognized that, and I think Sean McVay wanted to do that. I think there's two things Sean McVay wanted. He wanted to have a more meaningful vertical passing game, downfield passing game, which Matthew Stafford can give you. He, he's one of the better throwers the league has seen. And I think the other thing that he, he's done is he's thrown the ball more because of it. Sean McVay is not 
a believer in just throwing the ball on every play, but when you have Matthew Stafford, when you have the receivers that they have, and when you had kind of a, for much of the year, an injured and somewhat uncertain running back situation, he ended up throwing the ball more. And I think since they've had success, he's kind of taken that approach and stayed with it. And the quarterback allows him to do that, yes. James, weigh in. You might ask uh, Greg, who, who is that Bengals quarterback? Right, right. I, so, Greg, I, you know, Al and everybody listening to the show, to understand Joe Barra, to understand Joe Barra, you have to look at the highlights of the 2019 Fiesta Bowl. <laughs> okay? <laughs> when he threw a pick six and that guy just sacked him and lauded over him from Central Florida. Yep. And he was a, just a different football player after that. He's 7-0 in postseason, you know, after throwing that pick six that put LSU down by more than a little bit. So that, to me, is there was the Joe Burrow before that, and it was the Joe Burrow after that. And holy moly, it, you know, it, what a difference a hit makes. So, so, Greg, obviously Al tipped on what, what is the big story, and that's the, the Rams' defensive front four against what has proven to be so far a highly mediocre offensive line for Cincinnati. Cincinnati knew they had a weak offensive line, and when they drafted, the last draft, they picked Jamar Chase. Yep. And it seems to me Jamar Chase might be as valuable as any any one offensive lineman because he's so fast, he's so good, he hooks with Burrow so bad, so well, and it turned out to be a pretty good decision that the Bengals made. Yeah, well, it's funny, James, that you say that because I remember when that pick was made, obviously, and I was in favor of Jamar Chase. I thought that the two best players, and I always say prospects, quite honestly, because until they play in the league, but I thought the two best prospects in the last draft were Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts. And uh, and that includes quarterbacks, by the way. So when they made that pick, I was all in favor of it. And I took a lot of abuse on social media because most people, as you know, James, thought that they should have taken Penny Sewell from Oregon, that they needed offensive linemen. And yes, they did need offensive linemen. But I thought Chase was one of those truly special receivers. And he's proven to be that in his rookie season. Um, and I think the thing about Chase and the way they use him, they use him much more as a matchup receiver than a schemed receiver. And by that I mean they line him up to the single, to the to the uh, boundary side, the short side of the field as the single receiver, and he runs a lot of individual isolation routes outside the numbers on the field. And he's very, very difficult to defend. And one thing I love about Joe Burrow is he is an aggressive thrower of the ball. So when he sees one-on-one -on -one outside the numbers, he throws the ball. And Chase is really good in those situations. So... One of the things I want to talk about and turn it back to Al that I don't think gets sufficient. I know you do, but, it's, you know, we talk about Barra and we talk about Aaron Donald and we should talk about, you know, well, Matthew Stafford. The Cincinnati defense, did, did anybody see them coming that this defense was going to be this good this year? Uh, probably not. And I think they're good. I think they have some concerns in, in this particular game. 
but I think they, they've done some really good things schematically, and sometimes you schematically can really help out and maximize the skill sets of your players. Um, you know, I think they made a great pre-agent signing in Mike Hilton, the slot corner, who I always thought was one of the better slot corners in the league in all his years in Pittsburgh. And he's an attitude guy. He's feisty. He's competitive. He brings a certain uh, approach to your defense, a certain tempo, which every coach loves. I think the way they've used Sam Hubbard has really helped them. They move him around a lot in what we call joker positions where he stands up a lot behind the line of scrimmage. The signing, obviously, of Hendrickson from from the Saints has proven to be really valuable. He's shown that he can win one-on-one as an edge pass rusher. Um, and then Awuzie the, the, from Dallas. He's proven to be a really solid corner. So they've made some good pickups, and the defense has kind of come together. And then a homegrown kid, either in his second year maybe or third year, Logan Wilson, the linebacker, he's a really good player that maybe not a lot of people are aware of and will probably become more aware of as this week goes on. So I'll just have one more and I'll turn it over to you. I, I did not – you know, everybody, I mean, even if you weren't an LSU fan, you knew who Jamar Chase was. Sure. Right? Any casual fan. Cooper Cup. So where does this guy come from? Did anybody see him coming? Well. I mean, Eastern Washington. I'm, I'm, Eastern I'm, Washington, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean. Well, I don't know if you guys know exactly what I do, but I also, besides the NFL, once the season ends, I start evaluating college players, and I probably do about 250 of them every year. So when Cooper Cup came out of Eastern Washington, I studied his his tape. Um, And what I said on radio shows is I said, this guy can roll out of bed and be a really good slot receiver right now. And I said that when he came out of Eastern Washington, you know, which is obviously a smaller school, not, not a power five school. Um, and he's proven that and he's just gotten better and better and better. And he's so nuanced, so detailed, so refined as a route runner. Um, and he's, look, he's had I guess you could say he's had the best year of any wide receiver ever. He won. He won the triple crown in receiving with receptions, yards, and touchdowns. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Man. This, you this can't like, beat that. Shit. I should have listened to you. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Some other teams that could have drafted him earlier should have listened to Greg. <laughs> but uh, you know, um, there there are always the imponderables in any big game. Turnovers. Yep. You can't predict them. But one thing that often can be decisive is special teams. Uh, the Green Bay Packers learned that uh, this year. Do either of these teams have an advantage of special teams, Greg? You know, Al, I'm going to be totally honest here because it's the only way I know how to be. That's one area of the game because of all the work I do that I don't study in detail. So I don't really have a brilliant answer for that question. So I'm not going to make one up. So I just don't know the answer to that. I tell you, I'll make one up for you. The, the kicker for Cincinnati, the, the guy that went to Florida. I mean, that guy's unbelievable. That son of a bitch is unbelievable. And yeah. he told the backup quarterback, he took one practice kick. Yeah, yeah. He said, we're going, to, we're going to the Super Bowl. Well, the, the one way I will answer. Ice cold, nailed a 52. We're the going one to way Bowl. I will answer that, Al, is it, it, that does impact uh, your, your play calling approach because if you feel really good about your place kicker, and again, not that you want to get three points because right. obviously – I mean, I'm not saying anything profound here. No offense wants three points as opposed to seven. Uh, but it does impact when you get into field goal range how you might make some play calls because you feel very confident that you are going to come away with points. Let me turn the clock back three weeks, Greg. 
The Chiefs-Bills games may have been Ah. the greatest game ever played. I just want you to envision for a moment what your colleague and my close childhood friend, the late Steve Sable, would have done with those final 13 seconds that changed the world. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I became very invested watching that game live in the Bills. You know, normally I don't have a rooting, specific rooting interest, Al, as you know, yeah. but I just became very invested in the Bills. And in, in those, when Josh Allen threw the touchdown with 13 seconds to go, I just turned to my wife and said, you know, I got a bad vibe here. And I don't know why I felt that way, because normally with 13 seconds, there's there's zero chance of a team winning. You know, I don't know what the percentages are. I don't know if there have been exact situations like that. But normally teams do not have a chance with 13 seconds. And I just had a really bad feeling. And it's just one of those moments that that'll live forever. Um and I guess if you're a Bills fan, a Bills coach, a Bills player, that's the kind of thing you will take with you for the rest of your life. It's just, it's one of those defining moments. Um, you know what I thought of? And then you guys will appreciate this because uh, we're probably of the age where we all remember this. You know what I thought of, Al? What? I thought of the opening of Wide World of Sports, the thrill oh, of victory and the agony, agony of defeat, right, the human exactly. drama of athletic competition. That's exactly what I thought of at that yeah. moment, believe it or not. Well, the only way to overcome it is for Josh Allen to lead him back to a championship in the next uh, year or two. But and that guy's pretty right. special. That guy's he, pretty well, special. that gets me to my next. The NFL is a, is a league centered around quarterbacks. And there's a great contingent. That's, that's left or leaving. Uh, foremost, Tom Brady and earlier Peyton yep. Manning and Drew Brees and maybe in the next couple of years, Aaron Rodgers. But there are incredibly talented successors. <laughs> Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Lamar Jackson. Uh, the NFL a couple of years ago instituted rules to better protect quarterbacks. Has that made a difference maybe in prolonging the careers and success of these stars? Certainly, because you have to be really careful as a defense because it's a 15-yard penalty. It's a game-changing kind of penalty. So, you know, quarterbacks can't quite be hit the, the way they used to be hit. So even teams that like to pressure the quarterback with blitz, you have to be careful. You can't get—it's harder to take running starts and just smack a quarterback. So, you know, I think, I I don't know how long certain quarterbacks will play. I mean, two years ago, Tom Brady talked about playing for five, six more years, and obviously that didn't happen. Um, You know, Breeze has now retired. uh, But here's the way I would talk about the quarterback position. To me, the quarterback position is a very detailed, nuanced, subtle position. It's a disciplined craft. And we're getting more and more quarterbacks that leave the pocket because they can. So what happens with a lot of these quarterbacks is they leave, the expression we use is they leave throws on the field because they don't allow the structured plays to develop because they leave the pocket because they can. Now, do they make some plays here and there? Sure they do. But the game in some sense with, with quarterbacks that can do that changes a little bit. And that's certainly the case in college football, where there's actually more athletic quarterbacks than there are, obviously, in the NFL. There's more college teams. Um, So I'm curious to see where the quarterback position goes in the NFL. Um, I still think in the NFL, you have to make throws from the pocket at some point in the game, and you have to do it with the precision that's demanded. 
Well, I'm going to turn this back to James, but but Mahomes and Jackson do that too, don't they? Um, you know, it's funny. Mahomes, look, he's had a special career up to this point, but Mahomes has always kind of walked a little bit of that fine balance between kind of unnecessary and random movement and controlled and calculated movement. And, you know, in the in the AFC Championship game in that second half, he kind of crossed the line and was a little undisciplined. And again, he's a great player, and it certainly his four years in the league proved that. But it, I, I just find that whole dynamic fascinating from someone who's been around for a long time and seen the, the evolution of the quarterback position. Yeah. James. Right. So, Greg, look, I want to talk about overtime. And I, hope, I hope we have overtime Sunday. I hope Cincinnati wins it overtime. So when the Bills played the Chiefs and it was tied, so they went to overtime, hit the coin flip, Chiefs score a touchdown game over. It, for a week, it was they have to change the rule. It's unfair. Whoever wins the coin toss Until the is going to win the yeah. game. Okay, that was an article of faith. I yeah. remember I was texting with Jeff Duncan, who's a very good he's a beat reporter for the Saints. I, yeah, I know Jeff. It went the, the, the Cincinnati-Kansas City game went in overtime. I texted him. I said, I hope Cincinnati loses the toss. And they did. Right. All right, and they won on a field goal. Yeah, they got the interception. Right. And, and it was like no one said, and I was probably no one said. Cause I actually said, I, I, I think the, the, if I looked at the text, I said 51-49. Because I, I had a sense that the, when, you, when you were watching the, can, the, the, the Bills game, you didn't have a sense that the defensive could stop anybody. Right. When you were watching the Cincinnati game, you did have a, a sense sure. that, that could hold them to a field goal. <laughs> Whole second Would half. You, and, and we went to the Super Bowl. In 2009, on a field goal. It used to be the first person that scored. We were playing the Vikings in the Superdome. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, we kicked the field goal, won the game. Would you leave the overtime rule as is? And if you would tweak it, how would you tweak it? Well, I don't think about that a lot, but I'll tell you what, I love the point you made because you're 100% right. For one week after that Chiefs-Bills game, all we heard about was how the overtime rule is terrible, it's the ruination of football, and then the next week we had the Chiefs getting the coin toss and Mahomes throws a pick and nobody said one thing about the overtime rule. You're 100% right. Um, you know, I'm I'm okay with it, you know, and I don't give it a lot of thought. You know, everybody says the college rule, the college rule. I, you know, I don't really want to see seven or eight over, you know, overtime plays either. I, I don't want that. I remember there was a game this year in college football, Penn State in Illinois, I believe it was. Didn't it go nine or ten overtimes, James? Yeah. You might remember yeah. that. Well, I know. Well, look at LSU A&M, 72 to 71. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of that either, so... I don't really have a problem with the NFL rule, and and you know I think that you know in football, look, there's there's three parts of the game: there's offense, defense, special teams. You know, let's let's line up and play. Hey, the Bengals made a made a great play in overtime defensively, created an interception, and then they went down and kicked a field goal and won the game. I have no problem with that. Yeah, I, I just said that I, I, you know, of course, it's like because I wanted the Bills to win. But I, I just can remember sitting there and saying, I hope they lose this coin flip. I know. I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that game did have that feel. Yeah, that game had that feel. I have one more question. Going. In the big change in professional sports, clearly the NFL more than any other, is the introduction and support of gambling. I don't call it gambling. It's right. fucking gambling. Okay? In, is everybody sure this is going to end Okay. 
It oh, I don't, seems yeah. like we're making a big plunge here. And I'm not singling out because, you know, the NBA does it, Major League Baseball does it. I'm sure, some, you know, ping pong, every, every bet on anything now. I know. And I, I got, I, I just, maybe I'm an old-fashioned guy, you know, say it ain't so Joe kind of guy. But And I gamble. I mean, I, I pick against the point spread. I go to Las Vegas. I'm a horse degenerate. All right, you name it. But I, I, I just have a pit in my stomach about this. I mean, can you take well, it away from me? You're talking to the wrong guy because, I, believe it or not, James, I've never bet on a sporting event in my life. So I don't even think about that kind of stuff. You know, when people say to me, well, they're, they're minus four in the spread, I have to say, what does that mean? I don't even know what that stuff means. So, I mean, obviously, everything relating to sports comes down to money, and that's what it's about. But, uh, but I'm not one to... I don't get involved in that at all because I've never did. It doesn't interest me in the least. Yeah. yeah okay. So I, I, we both love NFL. You know more. You know you're a professional. I'm kind of amateur. Yeah, I gamble. You don't. But you, you, you got it in the back of your mind. I'm not making a value judgment here. I'm just saying this much gambling on this many different contests. Yeah. It is just makes me. Nervous, you know, yeah. human nature. I don't know. Yep. I mean, it's, but they're, boy, they're all in it. I mean, DraftKings and point spread, yeah. and you know, app betting, and I, I, I just don't. I, I can't predict. You know, with the young no, American no, player. and you see the ads on TV all the time, and the phrase right. I hear all the time is prop bets. I don't even know what that means, but uh, but no, it's it's all over TV. It's it's advertised. It's 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 about the money. Look, it, that's, that's the, the what do you think the first touchdown is going to be in the north end zone or the south end zone? <laughs> <laughs> that's a prop bet. <laughs> is that what it is? I don't oh, even man. know. I don't even know what that. I means. I can't wait till next February when we can get you back on the show. Well, I yeah, really, Greg, I, I, you know, I am I, old I, enough to have remembered over a half century ago college basketball and um you know it, it, it can really you know i i think it's i agree with james i it, it worries me let me ask you before you go you are the best i mean we really believe that every a lot of people believe that there's no question and your prediction record is better than was, well, Steve it was bad last year though it was, it was i was gonna say year. you struck out last year picking the juice over brady 10 p.m sunday night who's gonna be the 2022 super bowl champion yeah, I'm struggling a bit with this one. Uh, I, I'll, I think I have to pick the Rams because uh, I'm going to end up picking them in in the matchup, my matchup show that we shoot uh, at Disneyland, by the way, on Saturday. So uh, perfect setting. Um, <laughs> yeah, because well, you know, Disney owns uh, ESPN, so that's where ESPN said is at the Super Bowl. It's at Disneyland, so right. you know, I think if, if I make my pick, maybe, maybe Mickey should make his pick as well, and Mickey might do it better than I do, you know. <laughs> but uh, but I think I'm going to go with the Rams. But I don't I don't feel super strongly about it. I, I I'm just I'm just feeling like that the 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 biggest mismatch on the field is that that Rams front versus the Bengals O line, and I, I just feel like at some point that has to be a problem for the Bengals. As much as I love Burrow, as much as I love their receivers and their pass game, I, I just think at some point that's going to come back and bite them. Greg Cosell, we are so fortunate to have you on every Super Bowl uh, week, of every, every year. You are the best. Uh, the best. And, uh, 
Say hello to people I used to know at NFL Films because it's, it's one of the most spectacular places. Well, uh, you got to come America. up and visit, Al. You know, you're not know. that far away. I know. We'll do that. We'll do that. Yeah. And James, I, I mean, I know you, you travel a bit. You're welcome anytime as well. I'd, I, I'd love to, but just take another look at that Fiesta Bowl UCF tape. <laughs> you know, J- J- James, James came up to Philadelphia to teach my class with me, I don't know, James, maybe 15 years ago, and we had lunch, no, we had with, lunch with Steve Sable. Yeah. 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 We, forget it. Always was a treat. Never forget it. When's All the right. next Super Bowl in New Orleans? Uh, 24, I think. 24? We got the final four this year. Oh, that's an event yeah. that I've never been to and I would love well, to go to. Yeah. I've never I, I know been people. To. If you decide you want to come, I, I, I can get you a ticket to the reservation, I promise you. <laughs> oh, you know what? I may take you up on that. I, I, yeah. I, I, I've never been and I've always wanted to go. It, it's, it's, it's fun. I, we had it... I think it was tough when Kentucky uh, beat Louisville, you know, Anthony Davis. And it, it was a lot of fun. But, it, you know, it's, it's good. It's, 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 a bucket, it's a bucket list event for me. I, I've never been, right. you know, so. Yeah. I've been to yeah. two, having nothing to do with my alma mater, but I, uh, I'm, I'm able to ride my wife's coattails. She went to Duke. Uh, oh. anyway. <laughs> pretty good All right, Greg Cosell, All right. take Thank care you. of yourself. Be safe and, and good luck uh, on Sunday. If, if the Rams win, I hope it's by three. That's the best All way right. to find the ball spread. <laughs> you hope it's an overtime, right? <laughs> right. Overtime. And a coin flip. All right, guys, thanks. Hey, it's 2022, and that means it's the perfect time to up your game personally and professionally to make it your best year yet. That's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. There's no excuse not to try it. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination. We have that problem sometimes, James. Get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or finish titles like The Work-Life Balance Myth by David McNeff, The Black Church by Henry Louis Gates Jr., and Fear by Bob Woodward. In Fear, Bob breaks down the flaws, dangers, and destructive actions taken by the Trump administration. Not only does it bring those deeds to light, but it shows us what we're up against so we can resolve to stop it and make sure we do everything possible to ensure our democracy survives, which I know you're on board on that, James. Uh, Well, yeah, I'm on board that I want democracy to survive. I'm not on board that I feel certain democracy will survive, but... If we're going to fight for democracy, we've got to be informed, and Blinkist can inform you on a lot of different fronts. So, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an important weapon in, in the fight for democracy. It's the equivalent of our, like, 50 caliber machine gun or something. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, they, they blink thousands of titles in 27 categories, and it's all in one app right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium memberships. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com slash War Room to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist.com slash War Room or look for the link in our show notes. 
Hey, James, Gabe Feldman, a graduate of Duke, lawyer at Williams and Connolly, clerk on a U.S. appellate court, is a professor of sports law at Tulane, the foremost expert on some of these ballooning legal issues. Gabe, we thank you for joining us. Let me, let's turn to college sports to start. With the Supreme Court ruling on college athletes can be compensated for names, images, and likenesses, now you have an NRB council raising the possibility of treating college athletes as employees with intend, uh, attendant benefits. Where, when and where is this headed? <laughs> That's a really good question. Where it's headed is out of control of the NCAA. That we don't know exactly where it's going to land, but for a century plus, the NCAA has had almost complete control over how it operates its business and how it restricts what athletes are allowed to do, what they're allowed to make, when they're allowed to move to another school, what makes them eligible or not. And now, as you said, we have the Supreme Court. Um, uh, chipping away at the deference that the NCAA has had for a century and saying that they are subject to antitrust law. We had Justice Kavanaugh, of all people, write a scathing concurrence, basically saying that college sports shouldn't get any special treatment, that they should be treated just like restaurants and plumbers and everybody else, and, and they don't have a right to restrict athlete compensation any more than a restaurant can restrict um, waiter compensation. And then we have the National Labor Relations Board saying college athletes are employees and should be able to unionize. We have states passing laws to allow college athletes to get name, image, and likeness compensation. We have Congress poking around and saying they may need to intervene. We have other antitrust litigation pending. Any one of those could take control away from the NCAA and make the rules decided either by Congress, by state legislators, or by plaintiff's attorneys uh, and the athletes themselves as opposed to the NCAA. So unless the NCAA does something major very quickly, where it's headed is they're going to lose control of their governance. That, that won't sadden me, but we'll get to the implications of that in a minute. But let me ask you one thing. Uh, you know, I read uh, the other day, this is on the, on the names, uh, likenesses, and images, that Texas A&M has reportedly had the greatest football recruiting class ever. Now, I have no reason to think that that wasn't on the up and up, but I suspect it had a lot to do with rich alumni providing financial or future financial backing. And are we headed to a place where a school's success in football and basketball will hinge largely on the deep pockets of its alums and supporters? And what's the risk of that contaminating the sports? Well, did you say, are we headed there? I think we've been there for a long time. Well, that's, it's just been just under the table. You're right. Well, it's been under the table. It's also been through coaching salaries and facility spending. Right. That if you look to see why Alabama is more successful in recruiting football players than Alabama State, some of it probably has to do with the incredible facilities Alabama has and the access to the SEC money they have and that their coach is paid more than every other coach at Alabama State and probably faculty member combined per year, that all of the money that's already being spent there and then the money that may be spent under the table, what NIL is doing is at least allowing that money to flow more directly to the athletes. Um, it still may be problematic that the best team is based on who has the, the wealthiest donors or the wealthiest donors who want to uh, spend money on football or basketball, but that's always been the case. Now it's just some of that money is actually shifting to the athletes. Well, Gabe, if the, if the NCAA goes the route you think they're likely to go, and they, they, they rarely get ahead of the curve. If they do and they lose their antitrust exemption totally, um, uh, could you see the day where we really end up with just minor leagues in football and basketball and less association with educational institutions? 
We could. I mean, there's been talk about breakoffs, and back in 1984, the College Football Association broke off for um, television television rights for because Georgia and Oklahoma and schools like that wanted to be on TV more often. Um, I think there's two things that could happen here. One is we might see just a break off and these teams say, we're going to pay our players and they're going to basically be professional football, but wearing school jerseys. Um, or we could see where there are some limitations on what spending can be, but still the differentiation between college and pro sports is that they're college students. And as long as they are representing the school, it, it really is something different than pro sports and we'll continue watching. Because I don't know about, about you all, but generally we're more likely to watch LSU football play Alabama football than to watch the Baton Rouge minor league football team play against the Tuscaloosa minor league football team. I think a big reason for that is not how much they're paid. It's the fact that they're identified with the school and that they are, at least in theory, college students. So I think as long as they're able to maintain that, college sports will still be popular. What happens if we start paying them a large amount of money? I don't know. We'll see. I'm not as um, worried about that part of it. But what I think what really could happen, though, and I think where the fear is that that it just loses its connection completely with the universities. And we have D3 football, which people like, but then everything else breaks off into the minor professional leagues, which I think people just won't be interested in. I think you need that connection to the schools. James. So, so, uh, Prop, when the Cincinnati student suit came... And the 99% of opinion of sports journalists, commentators, other commentators is, God damn it, something must be done. This is something. Ergo, this is good. All right? So maybe, of course, NCAA doesn't have much power over the big conferences, particularly in football. But what I fear, and is there any justification of this, is college sports are going to end up horse racing and boxing. Everybody is in it for themselves. And what you've seen is a utter deterioration in trust in horse racing and boxing. The only thing worse than having Roger Goodell is not having Roger Goodell. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I think last time I was on, we we were still upset with Roger Goodell for not uh, overturning the Saints-Rams playoff game. We were. But... But, but, James but, still um, is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, and the Rams being the Super Bowl now doesn't doesn't help. But the the I, look, I, I think there is that fear that there needs to be some regulation of college sports, and, and just like there is regulation of professional sports, and if it is unregulated, if it's decentralized, and everybody's just looking primarily for how much money they can make from that particular event, without thinking about the best interest of the whole league, without thinking about the best interest of the sport. That's why we had the creation of the commissioner to begin with. Because when we had the Black Sox scandal, you know, baseball could have become horse racing in the 1920s or was right. horse racing in the 1920s right. in some respects. So we know we need some governance structure. We know we need something to protect, whether it's the owners of the teams from themselves or the athletic directors and the boosters from themselves, right? It's just a question of, are they going to do enough to make the system fair for the athletes who are playing while also trying to keep it 
um, keep some restraints in place. I, I think what they've, the mistake the NCAA has made so far is they've just been too restrictive. They, they don't need to prevent the athletes from having these basic rights in order to have college sports exist. I think both can happen. I think you can have athletes have more rights and college sports is still maintains what we know and love about it. So let's move to the, to the Brian Flory suit. You know, generally somebody goes to the lawyer to have a complaint against the employer and say, look, we'll file a suit. You know, what they're probably going to end up doing is we can get you a good settlement. You know, it's, it's maybe 55, 45 if we go to trial, but they're not going to want to take the risk. And, of course, you have this explosive stuff about Stephen Ross, about how approval it is, uh, asking to tank gain. If they, suppose they come to a settlement and they have a non-disclosure agreement. I don't think that's going to go over very big with the public. But the NFL it's says, not. look, we'll pay you $75 million to just go away. Yeah. So I, you're right. And the issue of non-disclosure agreements has obviously become a, a, a very hot topic. And we have lots of states that are passing laws to try to limit NDAs for in lots of different contexts, particularly around sexual harassment. I think in this case, you're absolutely right, James. I, I think the NFL, if they do settle, the settlement would be you get – X amount of money, and we're also going to announce these initiatives to increase diversity in hiring, and we're going to expand the Rooney Rule and all these sorts of things. I don't think it would be completely confidential in that respect. I think it would probably look a little like what happened with Colin Kaepernick, where we still don't know what the actual terms of the settlement were, but the league... Uh, announced all these social justice initiatives. So I, I think they can they can do both of those things. I What's interesting about Brian Flores, though, is that he probably, or maybe I would say, would have a job right now as a head coach, maybe even here in New Orleans, if if he hadn't brought the lawsuit. And by bringing it at his age and his stage when he was still the finalist for a couple of jobs, uh, he's basically announced that I'm willing to sacrifice my future career as an NFL head coach to, to bring this suit. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe he gets a settlement and all that goes away and people are willing to hire him in a year or two. But he certainly created a much larger risk than anyone up until now has been willing to take. Because keep in mind, the NFL did not have a black head coach until 1989. There have probably been a lot of coaches who have been discriminated against because of their race before that and, and since then. And yet Brian Flores is the only one to actually step up and sue so we'll see how quick he's willing to accept a settlement. So explain this legal thing before I turn it over now. Every time something gets into trouble, the bailer, the actually LSU did the same thing. We had the, the sexual stuff. Uh, the Redskins do it. You bring in, I think, the, you know, Penn State did it. You bring in a law firm and they do a complete investigation and you get a report. All right. So what is the attorney client? So they so. They bring in, the NFL, you know, brings in Gabe Feldman to do a report on hiring discrimination in the NFL. What, who has control over what gets released and where it goes? Well, see now, Danny Snyder is bringing in another outside yep. law firm to do an investigation. If I, if I was a lawyer starting out young, I'd like to do outside investigations. I could make a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm rethinking my career path as well. Um, yeah, no, it, it's a good question. And with these uh, so-called independent investigations, and when we've seen them a lot, and, and Robert Mueller, Mueller wrote one for the NFL after the Ray Rice investigation. Um, okay. And they get to decide 
how they use it, right? It, it's it's not truly independent. They're paying the firm to do the investigation. They don't have to do it, right? If it's part of a settlement agreement, maybe they have to do it. But they get to decide what they want to disclose and what they don't want to disclose. And I know people are uncomfortable with that, but they, they there's no obligation of them to do the investigation in the first place. And if they knew they had to make it public, they might not do the investigation, or, or they might limit it. So we would ideally have what the NCAA had when they investigated the treatment of women in the Final Four is a public report. Um, but it's difficult to convince an owner of a private team to do a public report of all the bad things that the team is doing as opposed to we'll do an investigation and then we'll make some changes. But it's not the public's business to know what we've uncovered in our private investigation. But so but if the NFL hires you to investigate, you're the lawyer for the NFL. So why would I, specifically to you, and I want to get it back down, why would I trust any of this shit? What if, yeah, my lawyer, if I, Williamson Conley, maybe did some legal work for me way back then. I have no idea, probably didn't. But if Williamson Conley's going to do what I, what I ask him to do, tell my lawyers, aren't they supposed to do that? Well, if you're the yeah. lawyer for bail LSU, they got control over you. Yeah, well, and that's that's part of the concern here is that they'd like to have a truly independent investigation, and it's not independent if you're paying the law firm to do the right. investigation, right? Okay, right? because they yeah, want to continue I, to be paid. Yeah, that always bothered me. Thank you for clearing it up. Yeah, <laughs> what Gabe, I, thought it Gabe, was. I want to stay on the Washington situation because I think it's worse. Okay. Um, basically, uh, there were there were multiple charges of really awful stuff, toxic stuff, sexual assault. Really, the league. Uh, launched an event. They took it away, they said, from Snyder because they had to. They were suffering a terrible public relations hit on that. And they said, okay, we're going to deal with it. We're going to be upfront about it. And then they hired this lawyer who had worked for the Redskins before, an supposedly independent investigation. We find out that she submitted no written report. We find out that the league and Dan Snyder had a deal where the it could only be released if the other person agreed to it. And the only people who suffer from that are the women who were abused, the people who suffered in that toxic environment, isn't there any way to uh, legal action or anything else to force some kind of disclosure of what that was all about rather than some bogus Dan Snyder investigation, which we know where that'll end up? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, and the one answer to it is that the, the victims uh, agreed to it. That they agreed to these NDAs. And, and there's a lot of debate about whether they are truly voluntary or whether they're being forced into right. sign these NDAs uh, or they're pressured. But remember, as part of that NDA, they're getting paid. And the, they, they might be faced with two options. Either we don't settle with you and you can sue and we can disclose all of the ugly details of this case, including details about your life, and there's a you know, 50-50 chance you win or don't win, but it's going to cost you so much money to actually litigate the case, or we'll give you a bunch of money. And you just – the only um, requirement is you don't disclose not only the details of the settlement but the, the, the details of your accusations. But and m most people would take door number two because they want to protect their own privacy and get the guaranteed money. Particularly if you're so, young and, and – uh, but Gabe, yeah. I think – I mean correct me if I'm wrong. I think some of those women who testified before that House committee the other day about the sexual abuse that they suffered under the hands of Snyder and the Redskins talking about – I don't think they did sign DNA. That's why they testify. Yeah. So, so can't they bring a so suit then, to get to make yes. the NFL show us what yes. Beth Wilkinson found? 
Well, maybe so they can sue whether they can get the the report turned over in discovery is is one question because as James said there may be attorney client attorney client privilege but they can certainly get discovery if they decide they wanted to go forward with a lawsuit and whether it's that report or other evidence of wrongdoing yes again it's just that most cases like this settle because most of the victims either are afraid to come forward or if they do come forward are given an offer that's too good to refuse. And so then these cases go away and then people wonder, wait a minute, if this had been happening for 15 years, why didn't anybody say anything? And the answer to why they didn't say anything is because of the NDA, because of the confidentiality agreement. And they say, well, then don't have them sign the confidentiality agreements. But if they don't, then maybe they're not getting the benefit of the settlement, right? Maybe that's it's worse off for those individual victims, which again is why a lot of states have said, you're not allowed to require your employees to sign NDAs to cover up sexual harassment. Because we've seen companies say, if you want to work here, just as part of your employment contract, you have to sign an NDA that you won't disclose any information about sexual harassment, or you won't sue us for anything that happens while you're working here. One final question, then I'm going to turn it back to James. uh, uh, Why did Dan Snyder hire uh, a law firm to reinvestigate this? He got off scot-free. I mean, basically, you know, chump change, uh, his wife supposedly in charge. So, and, and it was, it's clear that some really awful things happened. So, so why after the NFL report, which no one will find out about as of now, wh- why do you think he hired uh, two other law firms to look into this? Yeah, let me give you the snarky answer first. Yep. Uh, I would not want to make a living trying to figure out why Daniel Snyder does the things he does yes. and makes the decisions he makes. Um, but the, the more serious answer is I do think, as, as, as you and James said, part of it's the public pressure. It's, it's what has forced him to change the name of his team. Right? The, the, the litigation ultimately was, was unsuccessful, but it was the public pressure. And I think that's the public pressure here that is it designed to get to the bottom of what's happening in his organization and make wholesale changes and change the culture? Maybe we'd like to think that, but it's really at base to respond to the, the public pressure and to say, we're handling it. Here's what we're doing, and now move on. Let's move on to the next thing. And we don't want to air our, our dirty laundry any more than any company wants to air their dirty laundry. It's just people like to look at the laundry of football teams more than most other companies. But if they can find a way to make it go away and have the positive PR, if it, takes requir- if it requires hiring two law firms to do another investigation and say, we've got it, we've got it under control, then they'll do it. And again, I think part of it is response not only from the public, but also from the league saying, you got to do this, right? The, the people do not trust in what was already done. You got to take this additional step. James. So so one of the things I want to talk about is what you, a stunning accomplishment of Tulane. It's the first sports law certification in any law school in the United States. And, you know, if there's anyone listening here that if, if you're a person, you have a child or a grandchild, a niece or nephew that is in law school, wants to go to law school, that's very interested in sports law, I highly recommend that you send them down the gate. And one of the things that you do, I looked at the site, is you do a lot of simulated arbitration negotiation with the students. I mean, you actually, as I understand it, you try to bring them what it's like in the room when you're doing these things. Isn't that a characteristic of some of the things that you do there? 
Absolutely. Yeah. We do experiential learning, skills-based learning. We try to give them practical skills that they can use in the sports industry. And just as importantly, that can be transferred outside because it's a competitive field and not everybody's going to get a job in the sports industry. So we try to, at Tulane in the sports law program, prepare you to be a great lawyer and then also to prepare you to be a great lawyer in sports. But no matter what, you'll be trained to be a great lawyer. And part of that training is the ability to actually write, to speak, Um, and to do the practical things that you're going to be expected to do when you get out of law school. We're trying to give them an opportunity to do that while they're in law school. And a big part of our competitions is we bring in industry experts and lawyers and general managers and agents who are doing these things for a living to be the judges of the competition. And so it's really good networking and you get great feedback from the people who are doing the jobs that you want to do. So one of the things I could is I went to law school a long time ago, but I think it's that legal education is you, you you learn from you learn about Mrs. Paul's graph or you learn about Price v. Neal, all right, whatever. You know a lot about this. How does this baseball situation end? What's the what do you think is the major sticking point, and how can they resolve it? Yeah, well, so one, or which is like the equivalent of Mrs. Paul's graph right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's sort of baseball's problem. About as many people know about baseball and, and the lockout as they do about Mrs. Paul's graph. Right. Um, it's just the, the popularity is waning and, and they're not doing themselves any favors. Um, but thank you for the, the kind words about the sports law oh, program. True. Um, I, but the, the lockout in, in some ways is not a surprise because almost every other professional sports league has had a work stoppage when their CBA has ended over the last 20, 25 years. Baseball's first 25 years of existence with a union was notable for the number of work stoppages, both lockouts and strikes. Since 1995, there had not been a work stoppage in baseball. There'd been remarkable labor peace. But we're at the point now uh, we have uh, a new head of the Players Association, a new commissioner of baseball. They don't have the same relationship. And they are now fighting over what every sports league and Players Association fights over is, is money and how to divide up the money and how much money should go to the players versus the owners. And you know there, there are intricacies of the deal and of when a player is subject to arbitration, when they become a free agent, who can be drafted in terms of international players, all those sorts of things. Ultimately, though, I, I think we we'll probably will have spring training cut short. Um, we may miss a couple of games of the regular season, but I don't think this is going to be an extended lockout that cancels the whole season because the only times we've seen entire seasons get canceled, like with the NHL, um, is where the owners decided that the financial system was so bad that they were better off not playing than continuing to play under the current system, that they would lose more money by playing under the current system than they would by not playing at all. And you can't say that for Major League Baseball owners right now. They might want more money, but they're making money. Every owner is making money. The, despite the fact that the baseball's popularity is down, their TV broadcast revenue is still bigger than it's ever been, continues to grow. Attendance is good enough. Ticket sales are good enough. They're, they'd be losing too much money if they cancel the game. So I think we'll see a lot of public debate and outcry, and then we'll see a deal. And baseball, at most, I think, will miss a couple of weeks of regular season. I don't even think they'll miss that much, though. I hope so because I'm well baseball fans and they're gonna fall off the face of the earth if they have anything approaching an extended strike here. 
Better, I agree. And then more people watch other sports. Yeah, or college but, baseball. So which, far, which listen, here Mrs. Paul's graph was waiting on a train platform on a Long Island railway, and it was something involving a scale and Justice Brandeis wrote. I think it was about proximate cause. And, you know, yep, supposedly yep, wanted, but yep. to whatever, Mrs. Paul's graph is a big person in law school. <laughs> yes, Maybe yes. everybody doesn't she know who she well, is. But. Gabe, Gabe Feldman is a big person in law school and the person on sports law, uh, Tulane uh, University. Uh, go look at that site. Uh, Gabe, you have enlightened us as always and been a terrific guest. We really thank you for joining us, and we're going to have you back again as this stuff continues to heat up. And that's a remarkable thing you do for these young people, right? That, that's, uh, that's a very vision. You know, to, to be the first person to do this and watch the explosion of sports and sports law, and you know, you're a real visionary, and I mean that sincerely. Thank you, James. I, I, I really appreciate that. And if people want to hear more about sports law, can I plug my podcast sure. while I'm on your podcast? Absolutely. We plug uh, everything. Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law. So if, if you like what you've heard now, you'll hear even more of that over there. And maybe I'll, I'll have you guys on it, I guess. Anytime, Greg. Uh, Thank you, man. James, 2022 and Magic Spoon cereal is perfect for meeting your goals. Whether it's eating healthier or saving more time in your morning routine, you'll love its flavor as much as we do. And it's so good, you can eat it all day, any day. So get going with Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can even build your own box and customize it to make your own custom bundle with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa, fruity, Frosted peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon cookies and cream, and maple waffle flavors. So make sure you try them all. It's delicious, indulgent, and it's healthy. I know you believe that, James Carville. Well, I, I believe it because it is. And I mean, only, the only complaint I'd have, you've got so many choices, you know, when you're reading off all the different things. Well, I like that one, but I think I like that one better. Yeah, I use it, I, I, I view it, much less a cereal and much more snack food. But you can, if you want to view it as a cereal, I think that's its intent. But it's so much healthier for you than, you know, popping M&Ms. You can't believe it. And it actually tastes significantly better than an M&M. Yeah, you're right. I got to get some more blueberry, too, for my uh, grandson, Kai. He loves that. I love blueberry. You go to magicspoon.com slash warroom to grab a custom bundle of cereal and start your new year off right. And be sure to use our promo code warroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom to save five bucks off or look for the link in the show notes. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. All right, James, now for one of our favorite segments, those really good listener questions we get that we try to answer. 
Um, Charlie in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We both know oh. Scranton, Pennsylvania. Charlie says uh, to you, James, that you desperately hope Trump runs in 2024, you say. I disagree. Charlie says, I mean, I guess the bright side is that a political genius like James Carville sees hope against Trump. But still, aren't you terrified of the consequences of him winning, even if you think it's unlikely? Yeah, well, good to hear from our friends up in Lackawanna County. Uh, you know, if, if Trump, his position is weakening, but it's sufficiently strong in the Republican Party to cause him grief. And as I said before, my idea of a political wet dream is that they have a credentials fight at the start of the Republican convention in 2024. And, uh, and But that could happen. But I don't think... Uh, 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 well, fortunately for you, less fortunate for me, I don't think he's going to run. I think he's going to get indicted this year. But even if he doesn't, he's going to hang on to the last minute so he can fleece as many people as he possibly can. But look how divided they are now, and it's just not going to do anything worse. I, I understand where you're coming from. You, you know, there's a slight chance that you, you know, have a medical test and it could go wrong, but there's a much, much better chance that your condition is going to improve. And I, I understand and appreciate your, your insight, but I'm sticking with my original position. Yeah, Charlie, I kind of agree with James. I don't kind of, I really do agree with James. Um, it, it, it would be a horrible, it would be horrible to imagine Trump uh, winning the presidency uh, again because he would do things. Uh, uh. The country was saved in part because of his stupidity and his incompetence and surrendered by a bunch of, of, of clowns. Uh, and I think next time he will have learned enough to know how to do evil more effectively. But I think James is right. It's not going to happen. James, I'm going to steal this question, even though it's from Bill, who is in New Orleans. Uh, right. And he said, each of you have suggested bills to accomplish specific goals, goals child tax credit, uh, carbon mitigation, pre-K, to be voted on separately to salvage some more objectives uh, of the Build Back, uh, Build Back Better program. But I haven't seen or heard any of those bills being introduced out there. Here's the problem, Bill. The Build Back Better is, is right now is being considered under the so-called reconciliation, which means they can do it just with Democratic votes. So, yes, if they break out some of these bills, they could put Republicans in a very uncomfortable spot, maybe pass some of them, a few of them, with 60 votes, but probably not very many, maybe have a good political issue, but you're not going to get anything enacted or not much enacted. So that's the problem they face right now. So, in, in, as you know, I'm a big fan, don't know him, but Eric Levitz, or Levitz, he writes in New York Magazine. Yep. And he had a very interesting piece that says maybe the things that we all like, these targeted interventions on behalf of, you know, children at risk, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of research that just makes you, this goes to how effective they are. I'm beginning to think that the way to deal with this is tax credits or direct cash payments. I mean, the way that Biden, you know, lifted 40% of the children out of poverty was just through cash. The, 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 the biggest problem with, have, with a lack of money is you have no money. And the cure is it, you know, it maybe Moynihan and then we're right. Maybe you should, maybe the most effective thing is to, to get rid of all of this. I don't know. I ask our listeners to, to look at it and maybe we'll get a suggestion or two, but maybe we need to rethink things that we've been thinking all of our lives. 
Well, that's right. The reason the child tax credit lifted so many people out of poverty was because it was refundable, which meant that those people right. in that poverty got money. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that is critical. It, it, the earlier version was not, uh, and this is. And there are things that I think that applies to. On carbon, uh, I, for the life of me, can't understand why we can't enact a carbon tax. I think there are business leaders, there are conservatives, <laughs> as well as some environmental people who are for a carbon tax. You can create rebates. You can do all sorts of things with it. So I think that's very good. There's some things... Uh, I think, for instance, universal pre-K, I'm not quite sure how you do that with a tax credit, but, but, but I, I, think, I think the point's right. But you're, it's an interesting observation, James. Why don't our listeners write in and tell us what they think and what their right. ideas are? And we got, uh, that, we got that, listeners that would be helpful. got such good ideas, but I'd read Mr. Levetz's piece, and it, it, you know, it causes rethinking. Or, or at, yeah. at least it causes to, to sort of examine that which you believed all you like. But uh, you, but sometimes just, you know, well, you shouldn't give people money. Well, sometimes money is the answer if you have no money. Yeah. And it, it, it is so much research that shows that poor people spend their money much more responsibly than, than rich people do. The, the idea that, that they get money and they're going to go out and buy drugs and this is is, is – not supported very much at all by... by we that. really saw that with the child nutrition uh, uh, measures that we were sure enacted in 2021 and 22, and they ought to be uh, extended. James, our next question comes from Logan in Austin, Texas. This is a good one and a hard one. The Ottawa truck driving protest that have tied up that city, they're now threatening to, or they are tying up the uh, bridge that leads to the Canadian border where much of our trade uh, takes place. Uh, is it going to spread? Uh, how serious is it? What, you sh what should you do about it? Uh, let's go through the thought process. So you're a trucker. You're from Saskatchewan, I don't know, Regina, Sac Saskatoon or whatever. Right, you're in ultimate demand. So you get in your rig, you drive 1,200 miles to Ottawa, you fill up with gas. Your 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 economic loss costs are enormous because you you got all the work you want. You know you can do the Vancouver to to you know Montreal run all you want, make all the money you want. You're giving up all of that. Night, by the way, 90% of Canadian trucks are vaccinated. Are you are. really going to tell me that the Russians are not financing this? Are you really going to tell me that there is not a, a, a larger funding group that's funding this? Because it's costing you a lot of money to sit there in Ottawa with a rig that's not making a popsicle right now. And you're driving up and down the streets in, you know, Canadian coal, so you, you got to run your, your generator, you got to keep warm, and you're losing tens of thousands of dollars. They're being funded by enemies of Canada and the United States. And I'm sure there's a lot of millionaires, excuse me, billionaires in the United States that are sending them money. This is not a, this is a movement of people doing something for money. And the more disruptive they are, the more money they get. That's my, that's my view, and I'm, I'm almost positive I'm right. Well, I suspect you are, and it's really, it's incredibly counterproductive, and, um, you know, hopefully it just wears thinner. They it's run counterproductive. It's not paying you 10 grand a week. 
It's it's just it's a it's it's it really is. I mean, the the threat to uh, Canadian imports and exports is serious if they keep this up for any period of time. So, let's hope it goes away. Uh, our next question is from Mike in Indianapolis, Indiana. We're covering a lot of the country today, James. We sure and are, man. Mike. Mike says, with so many districts getting bluer and less moderate, what does the Democratic House platform look like over the next decade? More progressive and how will Democrats in the House handle Republicans will be even more Trumpy? You know, Mike, this is the problem. I used to say, don't take redistricting out of politicians' hands. I worry about too much being taken out of the political process. I have changed my mind on this. I am for independent commissions everywhere. And it's not because Democrats will gain or Republicans will gain. It's because what they do in every state, and Democrats did it in New York and Republicans did it in Georgia and Texas and Florida. What they do is they carve out districts that are safely Republican or safely Democratic. And what that means is you come in with no incentive to think of other, anything other than your base. And that produces now, it's affected the Republican Party far more than the Democratic Party. But if it continues, it's just going it, to, that left wing of the Democratic Party will grow too. Uh, and it's just, it's just bad for the country. I think there ought to be competitive districts. And I think it's better to have voters choose their politicians than have politicians choose their voters. That's pretty good. I agree with that logic. I, I, this is in, in 2020. Very early, I said that the Democrats were going to vote more on the ability to win than they would be on ideological purity. And I think it's pretty obvious that I was right. I still think that's the case in 2022. And I think that people that advocate for things that may be popular among Democrats but are a heavy burden in a general election, Medicare for all, some of this, any police stuff. I, I think Democratic voters are going to want someone who, well, I might not agree with everything to the T, but it's more important that we win the election than we have some kind of ideological rigidity. And I think and I hope that carries over because that's the most important consideration that any Democrat should make when voting for any office. Yep, um, agreed. James, I want you to settle a family feud here. Kevin in Vashon Island, Washington, says his son is 42 and he's 73. They have a wager. And we're hoping that the two of us will agree to be the deciders. One of us thinks the Democrats should launch a targeted billboard campaign in swing states with a slogan, Do You Care? Example, not one Republican voted for your stimulus check, followed by Do You Care? A tagline, Vote Democratic. The other of us thinks, uh, that person thinks, he didn't tell me he's a son or the father, thinks he could be a winner, helping shape their narrative by appealing to self-interest. The other thinks this would be too inefficient. What do you think of that message and strategy, James Carville? You know, it, 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 it's interesting, but I think that they are, you know, if you were going to do like a billboard campaign or, you, put, you know, you'd probably do it online or something, I would do, what are they for? Well, I right. think what not a this debate is, I, I, I mean, there's not a single proposal that they have put forward that I know of. McConnell said we're not running on anything. And what, what we have to count on, but my, my, hopefully the slogan that we want to see everywhere in September of this year and October is, let's not go back. That, that people feel like that we've made 
progress. And while there may be gaps in the progress or may be more to do, that what we have made is not is sufficiently that we hold on to it and we don't return to the well we had in March or April of the year 2020. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be our secret. And do, do you want to go back to child poverty, by the way? Do you want to go back to, to hourly workers having no leverage? Or do you want to go, you know, do you, you know, want these things that they're talking about? I just like the frame of we're pushing ahead. We're not moving back. But but these guys are smart and they, it's a certainly meritorious suggestion. I just tweak it a little bit. Yeah, Kevin, you and your son. So it's a, it's, it, it really is a draw. Uh, no one's wrong here, but uh, you guys work on it and get back to us. Let us know what you conclude uh, right. after taking James's advice. We'd, we'd, we'd like to keep hearing it, from it, you, Kevin. And it's important that, that, you know, somebody, you know, I'm actually older than him, but having a, having a conversation and discussing things. Right. And that's when I think that our listeners do that a lot. And that's a good thing. And to the extent that anybody wants to bring us into that conversation, we're honored to be part of it. We sure are. And Kevin, I will tell you, uh, uh, differences on, on uh, matters like this between father and son are not unique to you. Uh, I speak with some <laughs> personal experience on that. Uh, and I think, James, you could say the same is true of fathers and daughters. Okay, can I? It, it, what seemed to be, as, my, as we both age, we seem to get a little better in alignment, but... Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah, a little better. Well, you, certainly I, 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 I will give I you credit for getting my son I would not in better want alignment. To raise a child that came to me and said, "Dad, what should I think about this? Who should I vote for?" But that would be the ultimate horror story. And, and the other thing that's going on, I take a point of personal privilege here, is they have all. The, you can't teach this because you're going to make children uncomfortable. Well, you know oh what? My God. Children should be uncomfortable about slavery. Right. Children should be uncomfortable about the Holocaust. Children should be uncomfortable about anti-LBGT discrimination. Children should be uncomfortable about Jim Crow. What the hell? You don't have to be... The difference between telling the, the children that you, it's your fault... All right, which is decidedly not, but this is nothing to be comfortable about. And it's, it is, how do you teach American history without racism? You can't do it. And, and so what no. you do is you come up with a sanitized ninth grade curriculum that kids figure out is a total lie. Did you any right, good? One of- you remember our guest, uh, you know, about six months ago, Joe Ellis, the great historian and the founder, yeah. said the founders knew. What they were doing was wrong. They knew it was racist. They knew that uh, that slavery uh, did, was incompatible with all men are created equal with what they were doing. But they had to do it out of political necessity. So you ought to teach that. You don't want to lie about that. Okay. Yes. Anyway. I don't, but you know, you certainly don't need to teach that the reason for the American Revolution was to preserve slavery, which... Because it was not. It's not true. Right. 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 You don't need... But there's enough... There's enough... Racism and you know anti-Semitism and you know anti everything else in American history. You don't have to make shit up. You can just teach the truth, and it, right. it's not particularly comfortable. Nor it should be. Nor should it be comfortable. Right. It's James, not a comfortable Jeff in, Jeff in Winfield, Kansas. Boy, I think we've oh, gotten okay. just about. 
Wow, what a what a collection, what a geographical collection of our terrific right. listeners today. He, he said, have you been treated for drink or drugs in the past five years? Medicare Part B costs are about double. I didn't know that, but I accept Jeff's uh, um, Jeff on that. He said, shouldn't unvaccinated folks pay a premium on their health care? I would say emphatically yes. I might worry a little bit about what this, what, whether this right-wing Republican Supreme Court might try to challenge that. But yes, you pay extra. You know, if you get an automobile accidents, you pay more for automobile insurance. If you're unvaccinated, you are more of a danger, your health is more at risk, and you ought to pay more. What I like to do is have a registry where people who are not vaccinated say, I think this is all bullshit. I don't think they work. I don't think COVID is real. And if by some miraculous, slight, infinitesimal chance I get it, I will not show up at the emergency room. I will not you know, impede anyone else's recovery. They, you know, so yeah, I, I, you know, obviously none of this is going to happen, and right. hopefully we can do this. But this is they just, all, these people stupid, selfish, and sinful. And they lie about it, or they won't tell the truth about it. Uh, this news: the Surgeon General in Florida the other day, a DeSantis appointee, oh, refused God. to say whether he's been vaccinated. You know damn well he's been vaccinated. Uh, Tucker Carlson's been vaccinated, as you have said Mark, before. Him uh, entire, they can't work at Fox without being vaccinated. Right. Why do you think that people at Fox, you very seldom hear about somebody at Fox. You hear about all these, you know, local, yokel, right-wing radio talk show people, these, you know, preachers getting it and stuff like that. The, 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 Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and, and John Hannity, I could, you know, they, they're vaccinated to the hilt. Every, as, as everyone that's around them, every producer, every camera person, every everybody is. And, you know, these people are, but, but if you're willing to die for it, be willing not to show up at the, at the ER, all right? If you, yes. Give us the power of your convictions. Impress us. Impress James, us. James, we have had... Convince you. An impressive collection of people from around the country. So now let's go to Randy in Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, so we, you know, we have to go right. international. That's Mexico. Absolutely, this is, this is a great town. This is a hard. This, this is a good question, and it's really uh, provocative. The new revelations that Trump wanted to use the military and homeland security agents to seize voting machines seems damning. What are the odds that this is enough of a smoking gun for the DOJ to prosecute Trump? At the very least, might a few more reasonable Republican senators or Congresspersons turn on him? So. I've had this, first of all, Winfield, Kansas, just make a, a note to my friend in Winfield, Kansas. In Winfield, Louisiana, there is where the Louisiana Political Hall of Fame is, which I'm very proud and honored to say I'm a member, and that's where the Longs are from. You and Very Charlie Long, Cook. Very Long, all right, and it's in Wind Parish, which is in North Central Louisiana. If anybody is at home and got good research skills and wants to write an interesting book, I'll give it to you. All of the stuff that Trump tried and he didn't succeed. That, 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 that's a whole, if you just go through and all of the things that he proposed or tried to do, well, it's just too crazy and no one did it. And I guarantee you, you can drop people's jaws with it because, the, and I don't have it right at the tip of my fingers because I don't, it's not what I do, but somebody, maybe some great journalist, you know, can sit there and wants to, you know, we, we, we'll churn out all the Trump books. All the Trump books are the same. 
at some level. Obviously, some are much better and some richer in more detail. But it's basically the, the same story told again and again. And don't just think of all of the bad shit he did. Think of all of the horrific shit that he tried to do. He couldn't succeed. Yeah. It, it, and, you know, and, today he puts out a thing and he calls Biden incompetent. He spells incompetent, which is not surprising to anyone. I, it, but James, that, in that one of those be, things he tried yeah. to do, Rudy Giuliani resisted. Now, when Rudy Giuliani is wearing a white hat, you know uh, it, the, the, the crazy stuff has gone beyond crazy. It, so it is. anyway, and when, Randy, yes, good, when, good, good, that's a good very question. good question. And I, I, I hope it stimulates further inquiry. Yeah, we'd love to hear from any of you on this or anything else. Right, we do. Okay. You know, okay. Informers and uh, challenges. That's what we're about. Hey, James, the Republican Supreme Court took care of their party again in Alabama's racially gerrymandered congressional plan. This was so blatantly political. In a state with 27% black population, Republicans crafted districts so there's only going to be one black seat out of seven. That was overturned by a three-person federal appeals court. Two of the judges on that court were Trump appointees, and they ruled unanimously this was racially intended and discriminatory. And then these five right-wing Supreme Court Republican judges showed their contempt for any kind of voting rights laws. It was done under a shadow document where there was no oral argument or real deliberation. And Brett Kavanaugh, the former Republican operative, had the chutzpah to claim, well, this isn't a final decision. The plaintiffs can come back in the fall. Of course, that'll be too late because the districts will already be set, uh, gerrymandered as they are and that will disenfranchise the blacks in this election. In dissent, Justice Elena Kagan assailed the Republican majority for using that shadow document with anything approaching a full briefing. As, as she said, most of all, what they did is a disservice to black Americans who have had their electoral power diminished in a violation of a law that this court once knew to buttress all of American democracy. Right on, Elena Kagan. Well, they've been... To, to hundreds of things that the Supreme Court has done to hurt black America. It's, it's, of course it is. And it, I, but the only thing that kind of surprised me was Roberts actually voted with the minority. But I, I didn't think that was just a head fake right there. And the idea that, that Kavanaugh times. was going to be, uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett was going to be an institutionalist. So just wait till the end of this term. You got tap dance on your head. So, so my outrage is, have you ever thought about a butterfly? And so, yeah, on I the, guess so. In Texas, on, on the Rio Grande Center, there's the National Butterfly Center, right? which is like, apparently there's a lot of butterflies in that part of the world. And, and they're actually beautiful, you know, one of nature's grandest creations. And they had to shut it down because these right-wingers were claimed that they were engaged in child trafficking and for the safety of the employees, they had to shut the butterfly center down. Now, I know that there's crazy stuff that we, craziness and imagine level we can't imagine, but butterflies? Jesus, man, these are, these are some world-class dumbass people. World class. That, that they are. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, The Jordan Harbinger Show, Blinkist, and Magic Spoon in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review, and we'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.